movie buff specialist Phil and John are back as we continue journeying through our favorite 100 movies of all time. Today is episode number 79, and we are on movie number 22 on both of our lists. John has the third man from 1949, and I am back to where I belong, which is in the state of pure depression. And we got Blue Valentine from 2010. Two very different movies, but two very stylized movies and two movies I'm really looking forward to discussing because of everything that went into the making of these movies. Um, Blue Valentine, when he came out in 2010, Ryan Gosling was like, a known thing, but when Blue Valentine came out, it was the movie that made everybody want to be Ryan Gosling. Um, and then on the heels of this was Crazy Stupid Love and and uh, Drive. So really blew up Ryan Gosling to another level, which is funny because when you really watch this movie, it's like, why? Um, not from his acting perspective, but why did everybody want to be this guy? And then we have the third man, which is Joseph Cotton in the lead role and Orson Welles in the small role doing a little reversal from eight years earlier when they did Citizen Kane and Joseph Cotton plays the much smaller role and Orson Welles is the movie. Um, two very different movies, but two very stylized movies, and I'm very excited to talk about them. John, I know, God forbid, you watch one of my movies prior to this podcast. First time watching Blue Valentine. Initial reactions before we get into The Third Man? I believe I texted you after watching it and said, if I'm depressed all of November, it's your fault, Phil. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, it's funny because I remember when this movie came out, uh, the trailer blew my mind. I, I was 18. I was in high school when the trailer first dropped and then summer go to college. And this came out in December. And I remember knowing it was going to be depressing, but I remember how much this movie stuck with me. I remember telling people like, oh, it's really depressing. But then people would go watch it and they were, oh, I didn't cry. I didn't do that. But this isn't a crying movie. This is one of those movies that just makes you feel so it's like Lost in Translation for me. We're okay. Lost in Translation. Every time it ends, I'm just like, <laughs> uh, that's what this movie does to me. So we'll talk about it, though, after, because I think we got to start with the third man. Um, John, why do you have the third man at number 22, other than the fact that you watched BFI's Top 100 at one point? Okay, actually, this isn't because I watched BFI's Top 100, funny enough. The first time I watched the third, I have a friend who raves about the third man, says it's the best movie ever made, or one of the best movies ever made. And eventually I was just like, okay, okay, I'll give it a watch. I'll watch it. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my first forays into noir. And I mean, it's timely that we're talking about this in November, the month dedicated to noir films. It's so, it's so classic noir, but at the same time, it has this phenomenal zither accompaniment throughout the entire film, Mm -hmm. which just doesn't seem to fit the film at all but in doing so fits the film so well. The reveal halfway through that Harry Lyme is still alive, followed Mm -hmm. by this incredible Ferris wheel scene where Orson Mm -hmm. Welles just shows why Orson Welles is one of the best actors Mm -hmm. ever to live. And it just shows um, this city in Austria, who's in which name I can't remember, Vienna, so well. It's, it's, a, it's a little it, known city, John. It's, it's a little just a known. little known city that we've watched many movies that take place there, actually. Um, but it shows Vienna so well, and it uses Vienna so well. It uses the open spaces in Vienna. It uses the claustrophobic spaces in Vienna. And it just, it this movie makes you feel so well while you watch it. And it, I feel like the third man just doesn't get the attention it deserves nowadays because people kind of forget about it because it's not an American movie. Well, 
I don't think it's because it's not an American movie. This is what I think it is. Joseph Cotton never hit the level of fame he should have hit in America. That's the problem. It's Joseph Cotton and it's Orson Welles. That is why this movie never became bigger than it was. Humphrey Bogart is the film noir mm -hmm. guy. Double Indemnity works not because of Fred McMurray, but because of Barbara Stanwyck and because it's Billy Wilder. And Edward yeah. G. Robinson was a massive name at the time. Fred McMurray isn't somebody that people are like, oh, I got to go see this Fred McMurray movie. And that's how Joseph Cotton was. Joseph Cotton is a great actor. There is no doubt about it. I mean, everything he's in, he's great. And now I want to see, I got to make sure that I don't start like misquoting what he's in other than obviously Citizen Kane, which is, you know, what he's best known for. Touch of Evil, obviously everything, Every him and Orson Welles are both great in that. He's, yeah, he's great in The Magnificent Ambersands. He is in Heaven's Gate. That's the one I wanted to make sure about because I remember, I was like, is that Joseph Cotton? He, he's really old by the time Heaven's Gate came out, but that's the Michael Cimino disaster. That's actually a pretty good movie, um, just really long. But anyway, all that, Joseph Cotton's a very good actor, but when you start naming those movies, the problem for Joseph Cotton is that a lot of his career was associated with Orson Welles, and other than Citizen Kane, Orson Welles just didn't do good in America. He is considered one of the greatest directors of all time. He's considered one of the greatest actors of all time. And yet Orson Welles never had a box office hit. He never did. And because of that, it's harder to go down the line and find some of his movies. You know, mm -hmm. Citizen Kane, Touch of Evil, The Lady from Shanghai, The Magnificent Ambersons. These are movies people have heard of, but not necessarily movies that people went out of their way to watch. And other than that, Orson Welles didn't really do anything. And I think that's what hurts this movie in the long run. I think it's a great movie. I thought some of the filmmaking, which it's Carol Reed, and it's so yeah. funny to me that this is Carol Reed. Because, John, what's the movie Carol Reed directed that won Best Picture at the Oscars? Don't look it up. Oh, Oliver. <laughs> yeah. How in the world is this the same freaking director as Oliver? Somebody tell me. I, I need somebody to explain how we went from this to Oliver. And Oliver's the one that wins him Best Picture. Yeah. I think he won Best Director for it. How in the world? Oliver's fine. Don't get me wrong. And Ron Moody and Oliver is absurd. So entertaining. But this movie, the level of filmmaking is so unreal and i actually wonder and i haven't looked much into the third man but having somebody like orson wells on set of this movie does that allow this movie is that why this is was orson wells maybe a little bit more involved in some of what was going on in the production side of things as well because a lot of what you're seeing in this is very citizen king in terms yeah. of the, the the cinematography and everything yeah that's a really good question and Maybe it's just one of those benefits of having someone like Orson Welles in your film, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you kind of get that sounding board. I don't know. I don't really know enough about Orson Welles on set to see if he would, like, kind of override Carol Reed with this. Mm -hmm. But I don't really care because whatever it was ended up working so well in this film. Yeah, it really did. And, and like, I, I mean, the sewer chase is fantastic. The Ferris wheel scene is fantastic. The introduction of Harry Lyme's character, like the actual first shot of Harry Lyme's character, that scene is incredible. Um, I also, what, what I liked about this movie, so I had thought I had seen this movie. So this is, this is uh, just one of those. Here's, here, anybody who's listening to this, who's a film person who really enjoys film, um, 
you're warning about going to film school if you do elect to do it is they love showing clips. They just love showing clips. If you look at a syllabus and you see that you're going to see a clip from the movie, do yourself a favor and go watch the movie first. Because what ends up happening is they show you this, the the steps of the Odessa step scene and they show you this. They showed you the Ferris wheel scene from this. So guess what? Any, and here's a curse for you all, any fucking surprise that Harry Lyme is still alive goes right out the freaking window, okay? So that's the problem with some with film school is the professors have to follow a certain uh, you know, they have to follow whatever the school wants and whatever the, you know, head of communications and the head of the department wants. But what ends up happening is by doing so, the department tells them, okay, here's the movies you can show or why are you showing this movie? And it turns into this professor showing you clips from their favorite movies or from the movies that they're being forced to show you clips from by the department, which the department, it's all going to be just, you know, cookie cutter BS. Mm-hmm. We're going to show you the same scenes no matter what film school you go to. If you go to USC, if you go to some random ass film school in the middle of America, it doesn't matter. They're all going to show you the same clips. So I had seen the Ferris wheel scene and I swear, I swear I had seen the tunnel scene. But as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I don't remember any of this. Now, film the war for me, I don't know why. It is a tough genre. I don't know why, but it is a tough genre for me to remember as I'm watching it. I've seen out of the past like five times and I couldn't tell you a plot point from that movie, but I know I love that movie. And every time I watch it, I'm like, this is amazing. I can't remember anything from it. And I don't know if it's because all the film noirs blend together, if it just, whatever. But I was like, I really do not recollect seeing these things. I don't remember any of this. And I feel like I would have remembered the music or something. Mm-hmm. Then I realized once I got to the Ferris wheel scene that I'd only seen like the last 20 minutes of this movie. Now I hadn't seen like the, the meetup scene or anything like that, but I had seen everything else. This is such a great movie though. And it's such a shame that with film schools, they do waste so much of their time showing these movies from like the thirties, forties that are, Oh, this is important. And we'll talk about important when we get to Blue Valentine. But this is important rather than just showing the entirety of really fantastic movies that actually have techniques that can still be used. Because The Third Man is so influential on so many movies that are being made 70 years later and you don't even realize it. But it is so influential. The angles, the shadows – the acting, the the deliver the the voiceover with the music that's kind of sarcastic. I mean, I watched Funny Games this week. You can't tell me Michael Haneke did, never watched this movie and and wasn't slightly inspired with the music choices he makes in that movie. Mm-hmm. Like you can't tell me. Yeah, and, and I mean that's kind of what the Third Game Man does so well, right? Like you see this movie, and it's this movie that you you kind of heard rumblings of, like the big film people talk about it a lot, but like the layman's have never really seen it. Mm-hmm. And you get around to it, and it just it feels like such a familiar film mm-hmm. because of the way it's presented and everything. And, and you see the blueprints that it sets for these movies that have happened since 1949. It's like you said, like the acting's phenomenal. I mean, again, we do have Orson Welles in this film who speaks in a single scene in this movie. Yeah. It's only the Ferris wheel scene that he <laughs> says anything. The amount of acting Orson Welles does with his face in this film is outstanding because it tells you everything you need to know 
Well, and um, you kind of you kind of feel bad for him, even though we're being told the entire movie what a horrible person he is. And he is a horrible person. Like the plot of this film is that Harry Lyon is running this penicillin racketeering, mm-hmm. um, letting children die, letting children die, and it's it, he's awful. And it sets it up at the very beginning with the voiceover at the beginning from uh, Callaway. You find out that there are these there's this black market that's like running the drug market in in Vienna and you kind of forget about it because all of a sudden Polly shows up and he's there on invitation from his friend to work this job which turns out was not a very good job he didn't know that he's just some writer Mm -hmm. and he gets there and his friend's dead Mm -hmm. and it's 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 it has such immense escalating tension throughout it because this mystery unfolds where it's like, okay, so Harry die or yeah, Harry Lyme dies in this freak accident right outside his house. And then it turns out, oh, he was there walking with his friend. And then mm-hmm. it turns out, oh, he knew every single person on the street. Mm-hmm. And, and then you find out there's this mysterious third man. Who is this third man that, that the concierge saw? And I mean, it's clear at the end of the film that the third man is just Harry walking away. Yeah, exactly. But, and then you get that reveal. You get that scene in the streets where the light gets turned on and it shines on Orson Welles' face and he gives this most maniacal grin. And you're just Mm -hmm. like, the first time you watch this film, you're shocked. You're just, wait, what is happening? Harry's still alive. Where's this film going from here? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fascinating. It's fantastic. I think the character of Calloway is one of my like low-key favorite characters in this entire mm-hmm. film. I think he is the perfect straight man for this film. And the moment he takes Holly to that hospital, as Holly's about to just dip on the entire situation, it's just like this man knows yeah. exactly what he's doing. He is the most competent of this international police that is manning Vienna. And he will stop at nothing to get Harry line. Yeah. No, and and he wants him and it's personal and and the whole movie is telling him don't get involved in this. Don't get involved in this. Don't get involved in this. And you know, we we I think what I like so much about the Harry Lime reveal scene is Harry Lime's reaction lets you know that he's almost like you're impressed that I'm still here, aren't you? And you're happy to mm-hmm. see me, aren't you? And and in reality, Joseph Cotton's pissed that he's still yeah. there. But it's it's this it's that ego it's that it's that sense of entitlement of I am like look at me look at what I like it's so it's so interesting and and like you said with Orson Welles's acting it's all facial expressions and everything like that it's amazing how much he is able to accomplish with so little and I think that was the whole thing with Orson Welles' whole career Orson Welles was just such an imposing figure. He had the baby face, but then he could, but he also seemed older than he always was. I mean, in this movie, I think he's like 35 years old in this movie. I mean, he like, it's, it's crazy how, like, when you think of Orson Welles, his whole career pretty much took place between 27 and 35. And then he ended up doing touch of evil when he was old, uh, air quotes. So I, I just, I, I love the, the subtext to this movie and, and it's something I'm gonna talk about with Blue Valentine, but I'll say it with the third man as well. These are the types of movies, like when I was growing up, I wanted to make movies. I still would love to make movies. You know what I mean? I don't I don't write that off. It's just one of those things as you start getting older, you're like, mm, 
how is this going to happen? And also, I never want to live in Los Angeles again. So that makes it a little bit harder because I hate Los Angeles. But these are the types of movies that I loved so much and that I find inspirational because they have very important messages in them. But it's not like this movie was made with the purpose of saying something. The Third Man was made, and I don't, I mean, it was written by Graham Greene, who's like really, really well known in, in the mystery world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was made because it's an interesting story with interesting characters, with fun reveals, with really good twists. And we have a director who's really invested in creating something. And I feel like now the reason why film noir doesn't really work in today's day and age or why we're not seeing them is because every movie, when they're pitching what this movie is going to be, it's okay, what's its importance in society? Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, that's not what film should be, but it's either what's its importance in society or which Avenger is getting an origin story. Like that's what it feels like we get all the time now. And the third man is just one of those movies where it's look at how horrible human beings can be. And it's set in this, uh, what, what was the, the containment area? Why can't I think of the name? What is the, like the, the, ex- the international zone? The international zone. Thank you so much. I couldn't think of that. But it's set in the international zone after the war where we know that there's problems and it creates a little bit of tension there. There is such a message to this. I mean, we have a guy who is stealing money to kill kids. And that scene in the Ferris wheel where he says, when you look at it from here and you just see a bunch of dots, you could say to me, keep your money. But in reality, you start saying, okay, how many dots are worth losing to make that amount? It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And there's a message there, but that's not why the movie was made. And the movie still plays out like a movie. And that's what I love so much about The Third Man. And that's what I love so much about the movies that just make my list in general Mm -hmm. and the movies that I give four stars. And I mean, I'm going to say it when we talk about Blue Valentine, but I feel like an old man this week because I've been watching – a lot of three and a half, four star movies. Like my letterbox is almost making me seem soft, but then I'm finding myself saying, man, they really just don't make them like they used to. Huh? And I feel like I'm like 90 years old all of a sudden, but I can't help myself. It really feels that way. And the third man is one of those movies. Yeah. It, it, it just hits so differently because of, I feel like the timing of this movie is so important because I feel if you make this movie set any other time period other than right after World War II, it loses a lot of its impact. I think yeah. a lot of the impact of this is you see these children dying because of their need for penicillin and everything. And you know it's because of what the war caused. Yeah. And it's because you know of the side of us the war. And despite the fact that it never mentions the war itself, uh, I think the only mention we get is at the very beginning when it's explaining that Vienna's divided into the four allied powers and everything like that. Uh, Other than that, your only real reference to the fact that the war happened is the fact that you see war-torn Vienna in this film. And there's just these these ruins amongst these beautiful architectural wonders in Vienna. And it's, it's so powerful because it shows how it shows how evil of a man Harry Lyon really is. Mm-hmm. Like, you see all this destruction around him, and he only cares about himself. Yeah. Yeah, and and but I, 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 that speech on the Ferris wheel just stuck with me so much because you have to think, when, when 
think about it this way, right? What he is essentially saying here and what I get with the deeper meaning of this as we talk about the war. The war is – every war is bullshit, right? Like I think everybody's in agreement on that. Obviously, some wars need to be fought. Can't have Hitler running around doing what he was doing. But at the same time, somebody like Hitler even beginning that process is bullshit. And yeah. so the people who determine when we're going to go to war don't go to war. They sit there and they collect their paycheck and they point their fingers and people go and get killed. And it's no skin off of the other person's back because when they have to write that letter, I always think there's a um, um, there's a song by um, Pink Floyd called When the Tigers Broke Free. And it's Roger Waters singing about his father dying in World War One or Two or whatever it was. Uh, obviously, it had to be two, right? He couldn't two. have died in World War I would War assume I. it was two. Yeah, he couldn't have died in World War I. Um, that would have been insane. Roger Waters would be 100 years old right now. But he says at one point, you know, he's talking about the letter his mom received and he says, and it was even signed with his, with his own Royal stamp. <laughs> and that's, it's the assembly line, go watch modern yeah. times. And that's what these people are churning out when they're writing these letters about, thank you for your service. And here's the American flag and thanks that your son gave his life for this country. Okay. Next one. Who, where do I have to go next? Like, it's terrible, but that's how it is. And I think that's what makes it so much more effective too, that it's set in this part of the world that is coming back from the war that has hit, been hit really, really hard and not for nothing. Austria hammered in both world war one and world war two, because yeah. obviously with world war one, it was France Ferdinand. So world war one, world war two were horrible for Austria. And now you set it in this carnival setting of, Oh, we're coming back. And you have Harry Lyme saying all of those things and he's killing children. But at the same time, how different is he really from the leaders who were deciding that we were going to go blow up buildings and kill people in these cities around Europe just to blow up people and kill people? And it, granted, obviously, you're fighting – you were fighting something there's that more. needed there's to There's more fought. to it. Right. Yeah, there's more to it. But what I'm saying is there's a serious parallel there. When yeah. you look at it from that standpoint, because how Harry Lyme doesn't give a damn about those kids, the leaders of Austria didn't really care who was going to die in their army when they were going to fight. And that's just the truth of any war. You can say, oh, it's terrible. We, we you know, thoughts and prayers, blah, blah, blah. The, the leaders don't, it, it doesn't affect them. If it did, they wouldn't be in wars. There would be no wars. Like you can say it's terrible, but there would be no wars. And yeah, Harry Lyme is a pitiful, terrible human. But when you look at the setting that he's in, you say, okay, how much worse is he really than the people who created this entire place that he's existing in? And is he a product of his environment? Well, that's the very interesting thing about Harry Lyme's character too and not being an Austrian character. Mm -hmm. He's, he's American. He's the only, is him, yeah. him and Joseph Cotton are the only two Americans? I believe so. We, we know that the, there's an American presence in the um in the international zone but we don't mm -hmm. see any other americans mm -hmm. and, and like yeah. that's so important i i think that's so important to this film because it, it's just this critique of war profiteering essentially mm -hmm. that's going on here and it, it, it's so fascinating that like this film which is an entertaining film which is shot really well and and is made because it's this it's this, this film noir but it still has this deeper meaning to it as well that resonates 70 years later. Yeah. Yeah.
It, 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 it's and 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 that's the depth. That's what I'm talking about. Like when we sit down and we watch that scene in film school. Okay, great. That's a really well written scene. But what do you take from that? You haven't seen the rest of the movie. You don't really know what's going on otherwise. You know what I mean? And you I just think lose a lot of context of a film of like that scene without seeing the rest of the film that precedes uh, it too. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And that's that's why like watching clips in a film class is dumb anyway, unless you're literally watching a clip of like a short or a movie that everybody in the world has seen. Um but yeah, the the third man. I love the setup of this movie. This is just simple classic noir. It does. There's nothing complex about this guy. Shows up. I always talk about technology ruins drama. He would have known nowadays that he was that. Hey, he would have gotten a phone call or something from somebody. Hey, this person's dead. Don't come. But he shows up. Harry Lime is essentially setting him up. He shows up. Friend finds out his friend's dead, but then starts to look into it a little bit and decides to stay. That is what noir is all about. And, and he just, it, it all starts just with Holly's curiosity about it too, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's, he has no stake in anything. It's nope. a little awkward. Yeah. He gets pulled, pulled aside by Callaway. Who's like, okay, this is a pretty suspicious here, but he, it's his own, it's his own um, curiosity that really drives this film. And then we get like the introduction of Anna, who's this, who is a great femme fatale, and I love the role she plays in this, where she's trying so hard to protect Harry the entire mm -hmm. time. It's like, she's in on it, she knows what's going on, and she pretty much succeeds at doing it. Mm -hmm. And and we get that final scene right before the subway chase, or the, the sewer chase, and she's done it. Anna has convinced Holly not to betray Harry. Mm-hmm. And then the absolute absurdity of the entire situation is Harry shows up still. Yep. Because Harry trusts Holly that much. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating how much like these little tiny interactions in this film just build these characters to be so strong. Yeah. And, and we also don't know exactly how tight him and Harry Lime are. We understand that they're really good friends. We like it, it feels like it keeps escalating, but without ever hearing the backstory of what made them so tight. And I think that's really compelling too and adds to it because is Holly staying around because he actually cares about Harry Lyme that much? Or is he staying around because he's a writer who is now invested in the story that is going on? Mm -hmm. And therefore he cares about Harry Lyme more. And we see this a lot in these types of movies, right? Like that's normally why like a movie like Brick, Ryan Johnson's uh, yeah. first or one of his first, whatever. But that that works because it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt with the girl. The girl dies. And now what's going to like what's going to happen? She was, you know, they had their little thing. But that's what always that's what drives film noir, right? Like a lot of the time is somebody dies that you care about. You don't care about enough that you knew what was going on entirely but you care about them enough to look into what is fishy about their death that is what drives noir because you can't have all the info but it's still there still needs to be motivation to continue down this path and that's why you know people can say it's a tired genre and they're tired of the femme fatale and whatever but that's why it's normally a femme fatale or a female who dies because if you have the male in that role it's somebody that they didn't totally understand, but they wish they had understood. And now they finally feel like they can get to know that person better. That's the heart of it. 
And this movie, though, is interesting because it's Harry Lyme who dies, and the woman is alive the entire time. The femme fatale is around and seems to be in on everything um, throughout throughout the entire process. Yeah, it's it's just so well it, it's just so well constructed. It, it, it's it feels like a film that is just made from someone who understands the genre so well and understands what is necessary for the genre to succeed. And it's all present here, filled with, like you said, like some absolutely spectacular cinematography in this film. Mm-hmm. And is. then the zither. And then there's the zither. Mm-hmm. And it's I don't know. Great music choice. It is. And it, it, it feels so playful and, and so out of place in this film. But like I said earlier, like that's what makes it fit this film so well. It's this Austrian instrument that like never really gets anything. It sounds ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it still punctuates every scene because it feels like it's just making fun of how serious every scene is. It does. It does. And and there's something about that that works, right? Like there's a reason why stuck in the middle with you when somebody's getting their ear cut off works so well. Like, you know, there's a contrast that when done right really is awesome. Have you seen Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers first movie? No. So they use the same old song throughout that movie by the four mm-hmm. top. The movie is about people getting killed and screwed out of money. I mean, it's a Coen Brothers movie. But yeah. They just keep playing the same old song by the four tops. The contrast is brilliant. And I really do. I, I agree with you. It adds like an aloofness to everything. Like everything is just a little like, oh, isn't this great? Because I almost feel like the guy who's trying to tell you this story is so broken by the story that they can't tell it to you with a straight face. Yeah. And before we move on from the third man, I, I, it would be a shame not to mention the final shot of this film. Yeah. Of, uh, of Holly after the funeral, Calloway's taking him to his plane and Holly gets out because Anna's walking down the road and he just stands there and leans and Anna slowly walks past him doesn't acknowledge him and keeps going and he just lights up a cigarette and that's the end of the film. It's such a beautiful way to end this film. It, it's fantastic and just like the perfect final scene. It really is unbelievable. Um, I almost texted you and said I want that as a as like a, a poster so I can hang it on yeah. my wall because again, like there's just such a mood to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there is just such a mood to what we are being shown there and what is being depicted and with no words, with really no acting, we can't even see their facial expressions with none of that. It's everything is told. Everything is told. And it leaves you with such a feeling and yeah, it's a haunting last shot, but it also, it's, it's one of those last shots when you're watching it, you're like, this is important. Like this Mm -hmm. is, this is more profound than it was ever meant to be. And it just like watching that last shot after watching that movie made me feel like I was in on something that other people just aren't in on and will never experience. You know what I mean? Like people who don't watch the third man, they'll never be in on what I was in on in that moment. Exactly. And that's why I want it as a poster. I want to hang it. I'm going to surprise my wife with it and put it in the living room and take up the entire wall. Really get a full, full one. (sighs) But anyway, all right, John, what was the best thing you watched? So this is, 
pre-Halloween into November 6th. So this is a little tough because we have a lot of horror in there and all that fun stuff. What was the best thing you watched? I actually didn't watch that much in this like 10-day stretch because I watched Frankenstein because I just finished reading the book. So I watched that. And then for a long time, I thought Frankenstein was going to be the movie I had to talk about here. But the other night, I went and saw uh, Park Chan Whoop's Decision to Leave. Which is a film, it's been really highly toted amongst uh, international film fans. It's a Korean film. It's been out for months in Korea. It's finally got its North American release uh, this in the past week. And it came here. I went and saw it in theaters. This film blew me away. It's phenomenal. Turns out, there's no other way I would explain this film other than a film noir. Like, that's just Mm -hmm. what it is. And I was talking to my friend I saw it with who was like, yeah, it was a really good movie, but I didn't really put it over the top. It's like, it was the point where I realized this film was like double indemnity that this film really be, went that next step for me. Mm-hmm. It's it's phenomenal. It's about this cop who goes and investigates this death in, in Korea. And it just, he meets the, uh, the widow of the victim and film noir stuff ensues from there. Phenomenal. <laughs> Sounds it's like it was. Gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful. The acting from uh, Park Hae-il, and Tong Wei is outstanding. The story twists and turns the entire way. Had no idea where it was going. It is one of the most touching films. It's one of, the, I mean, it's being toted as like this very huge romantic film, and it really is. It pulls in your tarts, on your heartstrings, and has. I, I left the film completely devastated at the end. It was it was beautiful. I'll have to check it out. I hadn't heard of it until John mentioned it, and then he said it was the favorite to win foreign language film at the Oscars, and. Man, it's so hard. I mean, we'll talk about it with Blue Valentine because so much of what makes Blue Valentine legendary in my mind is the advertising campaign that went into it. And I just feel yeah. like movies do not advertise like they used to. But we'll talk about that. Um, for me, it's tough because I'd have to go Bride of Frankenstein. So like John, I read, air quotes, Frankenstein. And um, I watched Frankenstein, watched The Bride of Frankenstein, and I watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. All of them are fantastic. Um the Bride of Frankenstein is interesting because it's set up as like um, Mary Shelley and like three other or two other poets are sitting around. And how would the story have gone? It's so over the top for like the first five minutes and it's like so hokey. And then it gets into the story and it leans so hard into the mad scientist genre, the angles, the shadows, the monster. It leans so hard into the themes that really do make that genre so classic. And, um, it's just a fantastic movie. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is hilarious. And I don't know how it still holds up as well as it does to this day. Um, if you don't like Lou Costello, you're not going to like the movie. But if you can handle Lou Costello's slapstick, it's fantastic. Um, so I'll say Bride of Frankenstein. Although I do want to give a little special shout out. I finally watched Funny Games. I didn't give it four stars. But man, that movie wrecked me. Oh my God. It's crazy to me that people love that movie as much as they do. The filmmaking is fantastic. There are some brilliant moments. I mean, brilliant moments. And the direction is like second to none. But man, what a freaking ride that movie is. And it just, it's bleak. And then it's bleak. And then it continues to be bleak. And then it's just bleak. And then there's more bleakness. And you're just like, oh my God. But it's so much more well thought out than other torture porn type movies. And it's saying so much more than that. Um, yeah. I watched the 97 one, by the way, I didn't watch the 2007 one, but Bride of Frankenstein was the best one I watched this week. I mean, they're the same movie anyway, so it doesn't really matter, right? 
That, that's what I hear. I mean, except like, do you like Naomi Watts more or not? It always cracks me up when you see like, obviously psycho versus psycho is a different story, yeah. different director. Vince Vaughn is not Anthony Perkins. Like what the hell are you doing? But it does make me laugh that like a movie in German remade by the same director. Now it's in English with really good actors. Like, let's be real. Like Naomi yeah. Watts is a fantastic actress. And one has a 71% Rotten Tomatoes and the other is a 51% Rotten Tomatoes. It's like, okay, where did it go wrong in the 51%? Like, where did that yeah. one go wrong? Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, okay. So let's talk about Blue Valentine. And Blue Valentine, Blue Valentine is just one of those movies for me. So I, like I said already, when the trailer for this movie dropped, I was in high school, um, senior year, like end of senior year. And we were all just like really into movies. You know, we were, we were those people who like grew up and we're like, we're going to make movies because we live in the same town. And it was like, yeah, okay. None of us do any of that, but we were all just really into movies. I don't know what it was about this town, but we just were. And this trailer came out and all of us were like, Oh my God, like this is crazy i mean the whole trailer is set to ryan gosling singing you always hurt the one you love um which obviously went on to be some hell of a you know scene and pretty iconic um but i just remember watching this trailer and being like i I can't wait to watch that movie and so when it was coming out stamped with an nc-17 rating maybe the only good thing harvey weinstein ever did in his life was fight against this as hard as he did And him and Ryan Gosling both fought so hard against the NC-17 rating, and they accused the MPAA of sexism because the MPAA came back to them and said because there's an oral sex scene in this movie, it is NC-17. And Ryan Gosling and Harvey Weinstein went back to the MPAA with every movie that had an R rating in like the last like 20 years that had an oral sex scene on a man. And... It was egregious because you can't tell me that Blue Valentine is NC-17 when this movie's coming out like two years after, um, what do you call it, freaking Planet Terror or whatever the hell the Robert Rodriguez movies is where Bruce Willis's penis drips off of his body. It drips off of his body, okay? Like what is going on? So ended up getting changed to an R rating without any cuts because they just refused. But – what happened was because of that, it did hurt the distribution a little bit. And so me and my friends had to go to New York city. We lived in South Jersey. We went to New York city and we saw this at the Angelica film center in Greenwich village. And I remember going and watching this movie. And while we're watching the movie, the subway goes behind the Angelica film center. So the whole screen starts shaking and shit. Like it was an experience. But anyway, I walked out of this movie and it blew my mind like it devastated me because what the trailer showed is this young couple in love and what the movie depicts for the first 20 minutes is two old people with a daughter who hate each other Mm -hmm. and it's not what i expected you expect it to be depressing in one way and then it goes a different way and I just find this movie so inspirational from a filmmaking perspective, from a writing perspective, just from a creativity perspective. Because how many movies do we see about young couples who have their mute cute and then their lives and then they fall out of love? We see it all the time. I really don't believe that we've ever seen it done as well ever, ever as we do in this movie. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a different kind of movie because that is Mm – 
falling in love out of it, that's different. Science fiction. Science fiction. It's different. Yeah. Blue Valentine just nails the realism. And everything that Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling and Derek Cian France put into this movie. And I'm going to talk a lot about it because this is, I think the, the, the making of Blue Valentine is incredible for, for a movie that's about two people, yeah. right? It's like Linklater when he made Before Sunrise and Before Sunset yeah. and then eventually Before Midnight. We just don't see movies like this anymore because this movie says so much about relationships, about societal pressures for relationships, about these fictitious beliefs we have that are going to come out of love and relationships and it's all going to be hunky-dory. And blah, 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 blah. And it is so profound. And yet what this movie is, is like, again, they just went out to make a movie that was just about people who fell in love and fell out of love. Like that's what they went out to make. And they did it in such a beautiful, creative and all that way. I just like when I keep saying like they really just don't. I After I got done with this, it kind of made me depressed, not just because it was Blue Valentine, but because I said, man. I have the feeling I had 12 years ago when I watched this for the first time and said, man, one day I hope I make something that powerful and that good and whatever. And I had that feeling again. I haven't had that feeling for a long time watching movies. And I had it again and I felt that inspiration. And then I said to myself, where does this fit in in today's marketplace? And it really doesn't. Like it just doesn't. Like does Blue Valentine come out in 2022, John? I don't think it does. I don't know. It's really tough because the thing with Blue Valentine and what it does so well is it is it hits you hard with realism. The entire film is so realistic. Anyone who has been in a long-term relationship and had it fall apart has been through something like this, right? That experience of falling out of love that we don't see in mainstream media very often because people don't like that. People are not like us, Phil. People don't like being depressed all the time after they see a yeah. movie. So these type of movies don't do well. I think today people are getting more in touch with those emotions and do like seeing that type of realism in film more. So I do think this could succeed more because I think smaller films that do this succeed more now. But that I being do- said, like I just don't know how you convince someone to make this movie. And and that's the thing. Like, obviously Harvey Weinstein is a horrible human being. Um, but I, I always, like, I always throw out, or I didn't make any any money off Harvey Weinstein, right? Yeah. I'm not those people. Like, and I'm not going to hate Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams for making money off of Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Hollywood, I hate to break it to everybody, it's kind of a cesspool. There's a lot of really bad people out there. And as long as they were making money, they didn't care how bad those people were. And so my thing is to get all that out of the way now and now start to praise Harvey Weinstein a little bit, the man produced some of the greatest movies of all time during a 20-year period with all his own money, you know, or with all his own backing, skill, whatever he was able to do. And he made sure these movies got made. Without him, we don't have a lot of the most iconic independent films of the 90s and 2000s. And without him, we probably don't have successful independent film the way we ended up having it. I really believe that. I really believe that. It's one of the toughest conversations to kind of broach right now. But if you think about the fact that like what Miramax did and what the Weinstein Company did for 
small like Tarantino. We don't have Tarantino without Weinstein. No. Uh, most Kevin Smith's movies don't get made without Weinstein. Um, like Scream doesn't get made without Harvey Weinstein. Like these are movies that everyone's seen, that everyone knows. And yeah, this man is the salt of the earth. He is one of the worst people out there. And but we do have to take that time to acknowledge that yeah, the Weinsteins did kind of make it so that we could have these independent films now. Because where I'm going with all this, because I don't want to turn the conversation too far from Blue Valentine, because like number 22, and I honestly believe this could be a top 10 movie for me. I really do. Um, Where I'm going with this is, I feel like movies like Blue Valentine, Derek Cian France was an unknown. Honestly, at this Mm -hmm. point, Derek Cian France is still kind of an unknown. He made The Place Beyond the Pines, didn't do very well at the box office, made the, what is it, the light between the towers or whatever with Michael oh, Fassbender yeah. and Alicia Vikander. That didn't do well at the box office. And then he turns around and he writes Sound of Metal, co-writes Sound of Metal. Now, people don't really realize that. And that's kind of where Derek Sian France has gone at this point. But what I'm getting at is a lot of really great independent film, if it's not an Oscar movie, it's just getting swept under the rug these days. Because mm-hmm. rather than having the Weinstein company owning Hollywood in this independent space and making sure to get distribution for these types of movies, we have Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and Apple fighting for this stuff where you can't watch Coda without having an Apple TV subscription. Now, I don't recommend you get an Apple TV subscription to watch that steaming pile of crap, but the Oscar Best Picture winner from 2022 cannot be viewed without purchasing a subscription to Apple TV+. Plus. We're no longer in this world of how can we get a movie like Blue Valentine out there for the people to see. We are now, which is what Harvey Weinstein and Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams fought so hard for in 2010. Yeah. Instead... We're in a world where how can I get the rights to this and make people pay me a monthly subscription so they can maybe remember that this movie came out because after two weeks, we don't care that this movie exists on our platform anymore because now we're trying to promote our next thing unless it becomes an Oscar movie, at which point maybe we can. But The Gray Man, which is Ryan Gosling's comeback to acting, was talked about for what, three days on Netflix? Yeah, that's what we got. That's where my that's where I just feel like movies like Blue Valentine just really don't have a place right now. But all that all that just made me kind of depressed because I just remember when the trailer dropped and and the buildup and when you got a second trailer and then you're looking at the indie awards and all this. And Michelle Williams again is Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams are they going to get nominated for Oscars? Could Cianne France get a writing nomination? And there was an excitement around that. Like there really was. Like this wasn't just me and my friends. My English teacher. My freshman year of college, when we came in, said, has anybody seen – this was uh, second semester, so it was in January. She said, name something you guys are obsessed with. And she said, I'll go first. And she said, I've seen Blue Valentine three times in theaters. And I, she was like, anybody else see that? I raised my hand. I said, I've seen it three times in theaters. I had seen it three times in theaters by that point. And it was just – it was amazing what this movie kind of did because of the – because of what the, the content was and how raw and real it was. But also – the the production and the advertising, the free advertising they got because of the MPAA, 
nowadays, I don't think somebody would fight to, I think they'd say, okay, we have to cut that scene out. Or like we had Blonde with Marilyn, the Marilyn Monroe movie where Blonde came out on Netflix, had that scene that was really talked about. And guess what? Netflix just stopped promoting Blonde. They just stopped promoting it. That's what's happening nowadays. And it's kind of depressing. It really is. Yeah. It's a weird world we live in with the streaming and everything of it all, because like we don't even have that opportunity for a movie like Blue Valentine to get that cult following afterwards with streaming mm-hmm. because we don't have physical media. Like, can you even buy Coda in physical media? I don't think so. That's what I'm saying. You can't even own I, Coda. That's that's wild to think about. And like, there are a lot of films that you and I have discussed over these 79 episodes so far that bombed at the box office but did so well because of DVD sales. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, we don't have those movies anymore. And, and it, it's a shame that a movie like Blue Valentine could be robbed for us. Because, like, it's, it's, this movie makes you feel so many emotions. I should have known right away when I saw Michelle Williams in this film that I was going to be absolutely depressed out of my mind. Because she only is in depressing movies. <laughs> uh, but, like, <laughs> I don't know, like. This film is so real. And, like, I connected with this film. This Mm -hmm. film made me feel recognized for something I went through years ago at this point that I had a hard time describing to people. And now I can just be, just go watch Blue Valentine. You'll kind of understand how I feel. Yeah. Well, and and this was the first time I watched this since being married because it's not a monthly viewing for me. So this was the first time that I watched it since being married. And like it does have a different feel, but it's still what I love about this movie was the decision that Cianne France made to tell the story simultaneously. He didn't mm-hmm. tell the story of them meeting and falling in love and then tell the story of them falling out of love. And he didn't tell the story of them falling out of love and then tell the story of them falling into love. He brilliantly cuts this movie together where you're getting the information you need to get about each of these people. I always think about the Bobby Ontario scene. Mm-hmm. Why is Ryan Gosling so pissed off that she talked to Bobby Ontario? Like what a scumbag this guy is. Like, why yeah. is he being like this? And then you find out why that that is Bobby Ontario's kid that he is raising. And you say to yourself, maybe I understand why he's a little pissed off that she mentioned that she talked to Bobby Ontario. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Ontario is obviously a creep and he's a creep the whole movie yeah. and he's just a, a bad person. But just to hear that is is so crazy. Like just the 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 choices to tell the story in the order that they decide to tell it is really, really well done. Um, but what Ryan Gosling, Michelle Williams, and Derek San France would do, and it's very similar to what Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, and um, Richard Linklater would do. And they were clearly inspired by the first two movies of the Before Trilogy yeah. because those were the two that had come out at this point. But – they would meet up and essentially write the script together. Now, I know there's other people involved in the script, so they were there too, but I can't remember their names off the top of my head. But they would create these characters and say, okay, what is their backstory? Okay, you didn't graduate high school. Like that was just Ryan Gosling's decision to say, I didn't graduate from yeah. high school. Because why would his character graduate from high school? And also like, is this girl marrying beneath her because she's marrying somebody who didn't graduate from high school? Or we see him working hard and being charming. So what's wrong with that? And they would just write this script essentially together and just and just let it all out. And they did it based on their real life experiences, based on their friends' experience, other people's experience, whatever it could be. 
And they put that all together and they created these two people who are in very different opposite places, who are coming from broken place, who have really big dreams and aspirations. And maybe Dean doesn't have dreams and aspirations, but Dean has talent and he wants to impress the girls and he wants to go and do stuff. And we then see them later when neither one of them has achieved what they intended to achieve. And they're starting to hit middle life. And they're starting to realize that that, that flame that they had is going. And then they made those decisions together of how do we want to approach this? What's going to be bothersome for them? What's going to be bothersome for him and her and blah, blah, blah. It all just works. And to set a large portion of the present day of this movie in the bleak future room at the sex motel. Oh my God. Is that just, that is just, that's just a brilliant decision. Nobody's in a thing to do that. And it's brilliant because it says so much just with the room that they're in. It is. And I mean, the line, like Ryan Gosling saying, pack your bags, baby. We're going to the future. Yeah. Is it's just so indicative of this entire film because he's trying so hard to kind of keep things together here. Mm-hmm. And, and you feel that bit of desperation, in him, but you can also tell he's frustrated with the situation. Like he, he's, he's tired of it. The dog's dead now. And he, he's blaming uh, Michelle Williams for it and everything. And it feels so much like they're just going through the motions. And that was the big thing that I said to myself uh, when they were having, like during the sex scene, it was like, they are just going through the motions here. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. There's no pleasure in this. There's no emotion in this. They already. It, it's so bad that like they don't even hate each other at that point. They're just so indifferent to each other, and that's why this movie hits so hard. That's why it hits so hard because we see and and again to do it simultaneously, you know. And and I always think about the last scene when they're arguing with each other, and she's saying, "I want the divorce," blah blah blah, and he's saying, "You made a promise to me through." through good and through bad. And this is me and my worst and all of that. And we're seeing them getting married pretty much in the shotgun wedding because she's pregnant and they're just going to do it real quick. And, you know, and, and to see them running around the streets of Brooklyn, so happy and excited. I think I honestly, I think they film it in Brooklyn, but yeah. they're saying it's Pennsylvania or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, but to see them running around these streets and see how happy they are and all of that. And then to pair it with just, I don't care. And, we see that so evidently from Michelle Williams right away. Her character, mm-hmm. the morning that she has to wake up, she's tired of it. She doesn't want to be there. She can't believe they're waking her up on, you know, it's her day. Like she can sleep a little bit longer. We see him playing his little instrument and she's just annoyed by it. Like she wants nothing to do with any of it. I mean, and I think that's. Anyone's going to be no, annoyed of someone playing a melodian first thing in the morning. Well, yes, that's, that's fair. But. It's also one of the things she fell in love with that he was yeah. spontaneous and plays the music. And later on in the movie, when she's having the argument about, don't you feel like you're a failure? You have so much talent and you're doing nothing. That argument, what what I love so much about that argument. So Michelle Williams got nominated for the Oscar for this and Ryan Gosling did not. Now, in my opinion, until until Anthony Hopkins won the Oscar for the father or performed in the father, yeah. this was the best performance in my opinion ever. And, and I know that people will react to that in a very extreme way. I've seen a lot of movies. I truly believe that nobody has ever been more authentic in a movie than Ryan Gosling was in this movie. He plays two different people essentially, 
but they bleed into each other so well. And I just think Ryan Gosling nails it. And the scene of the Emery's crying, breaking down, all that. He is so good in this movie. And the clip they used at the Oscars for Michelle Williams' nomination was that argument scene. And, and part of that argument scene, obviously, yeah. we're going to show the whole thing. But that argument scene to me is so devastating because what Michelle Williams is essentially saying, Cindy is saying in that scene, when she's saying to him, don't you feel like you're a failure? You had so much talent, blah, 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 is by the way, I'm projecting this onto you because I have failed at every single thing that I also wanted to achieve. And now I am completely miserable because I am stuck with you. And I'm stuck with a kid that I was not planning to have. And I am stuck working this job with a boss who doesn't actually respect me for my work and just wants to sleep with me. And I'm a nurse when I thought I was going to be a doctor and I thought I was going to do all this. She's projecting. They're stuck in this small town. They had these dreams, these aspirations, and they're gone. And she can't understand why that doesn't bother him. And that argument and their conflicting viewpoints on that are just haunting because how do you get through to somebody who truly doesn't understand where you're coming from? And that's where they've grown apart. When they met, they had the whole world in front of them. They were going to achieve things. And if Michelle Williams had achieved what she wanted, if she had become a doctor, she probably would have been okay with Ryan Gosling being what he was. But because she didn't get there and it hurts her so much, she can't understand how Dean could sit across from her and not care that he hasn't done more. Yep. It, it's, it's devastating. It is. And what's so beautiful about this film and the way it's presented, because is it's just the fact that these feel like two people who fell in love too young with each other. Mm -hmm. And it, it's something that we don't like talking about in society, especially in films. Again, people don't like being depressed when they see films. So when you get to a film like this and you see these two people fall in love and then you're seeing them fall out of love based on the age of the child, this is what, like seven Five, or eight years, years later, like yeah. not that much later. Uh, and like, I relate to that a lot. Like that, this is a, really reflective of my, my glad, glad I could bring up trauma for so, you know, Phil's just hitting me hard with this one. But it, it, it hit me because, like, I I experienced this. I experienced falling in love at, you know, 21, right? I fell in love, and I thought it was going to last forever. We had these moments, and it, it as we got to the end of our relationship, it was just taken down by all these thoughts of, well, could I do – like, why, why aren't I reaching my potential? Mm -hmm. Why, why can't, why aren't either of us reaching our potential? Why are we okay with not reaching our potential? And it's that realization that like, one of the most devastating things you can ever go through is that realization when you realize that you and the person you thought you loved aren't right for each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what this film shows. And it shows it in such a devastating way because the entire circumstance around this, like, Everyone was telling these people not to do this. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love the scene with the grandmother. The first scene with the grandmother is mm -hmm. an incredible scene. Just what was it like when you first fell in love? And I don't know if I ever got there. It's mm -hmm. so indicative of this old generation and like 
we in our current generation like thinking that we can we can do more for love now right mm -hmm. we we have more options of of is more socially acceptable who we can love we don't have to we're not as circumstantially um like well, let's not hurry up and get married and, and buy yeah. a house nowadays exactly like, right yeah. like we don't have those restrictions that previous generations had and when you see this scene at first it's like okay well is this them like being like okay well you can find love or is this them being incredibly bleak and saying you might never find love and the fact that the film doesn't actually answer that question it, it's brilliant yeah it, it um it, it kind of reminds me of the hours um mm -hmm. for anybody who didn't listen to the hours podcast here comes a big time spoiler but at the end of the movie when julianne moore comes back and says it was death and I chose life. Mm -hmm. And that's what this movie feels like to me, right? Like Michelle Williams is at the point where she needs to choose life. And Dean is so content with every day. Like he said, I wake up, I go paint somebody's house. They're happy. I'm happy. I come home to you. I come home to our daughter and everything's great. And she says, well, I'd like you to get a job where you don't have to drink in the morning. He says, no, no, no. I get a job where I do get to drink in the morning. And I feel like Dean's intentions are all the right intentions, but there's no, there's no drive for something bigger, which also begs that question of, does there need to be the drive for something bigger? Like he says, do I need to profit off of my talents? Do I need, why can't I just have those talents? And the dinner scene after he gets the shit kicked out of him, the dinner scene with Jamie Dornan or Jamie Doman, whatever his name is, the guy who plays the father, it's not Jamie Dornan because that's the young guy, but the guy who plays the father, Everything Ryan Gosling says in that scene is wrong for that guy. He can't handle it. But we find out so much about both of those characters because Ryan Gosling, well, my dad, he's a janitor, uh, also an incredibly talented musician. Goss, and then where's your mother? Oh, I don't know. She left. She went off with some guy and I don't talk to her anymore. And we know that Cindy, her parents can't handle the way her parents treat each other. And it's despicable and she doesn't want that. And so here's these two people from broken places who think they're going to be able to do something different. But it's the nature versus nurture thing as well, where even though you're both from broken families, you're from broken families in a different way. And Cindy has that outward pressure to be something better. It's the worst thing that all these kids from the 90s and 2000s heard, which was you can be anything you want to be and you, if you put your mind to it. That's bullshit. You can't. You can't, I'm not going to be a quarterback in the NFL, no matter how much effort I put into that. And so you would hear that all the time. You just have to put the work in. You just have to put the work in. You just have to put the work in. And that creates people like Cindy, who once they get into their real lives, are very disappointed when they feel like they're not reaching their potential. But then you have the other side, the complete opposite, where it doesn't matter what you are as long as you're happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not telling you which one is right and which one is wrong. But Ryan Gosling's character in this movie is it has achieved everything he needs to achieve. It doesn't matter. Why does he need to like his father was a janitor who was a good musician, he was happy. So why can't he just be a painter who's got all these different talents, who's charming and is happy? Why does it matter? But it matters to his wife who can't handle that he is not reaching his potential as she simultaneously doesn't reach hers. And it's just there's no right and no wrong. I remember when this movie came out people were very much like, well, who do you side with? I don't side with anybody. I don't side with anybody. They're both struggling so much 
whether internally or externally with what they're going through. And people go, well, Ryan Gosling's acting like a child. So what? That's how he is. And oh, she's a stuck up. No, she isn't. She just doesn't want this life. And this movie does such a good job of showing people who wanted the same thing at one time and now don't want the same thing. Mm -hmm. The one scene you had mentioned where he's blaming her for the dog. I think that scene is so brilliant because we see in that moment him saying, how many times have I told you to lock the fucking gate? And then later in the movie, in her darkest moment, so we see him betray her there. I don't, I am blaming you. Mm-hmm. Later in the movie, when we go back to when she finds out she's pregnant and she couldn't get the abortion, let's start a family. Let's do this. It's yeah. a totally different thing. And as much as Dean acts like, well, I'm still so in love with you and this, that, and everything, he has also fallen away from what what he had felt for her originally, even if he's fighting it a little bit harder than Michelle Williams' character is. Yeah. I, 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 it's the dichotomy of the entire situation and the use of the non-linear storytelling in here and the simultaneous storytelling that mm-hmm. really drives home everything. And the fact that we see the start of the relationship and the start of the fallout at the same time mm-hmm. and that it, it kind of culminates in these two major actions, right? Like, like you said earlier, where we have the I want a divorce and the shotgun wedding at the same time. Mm-hmm. It, it's the mirroring of the motions and how they both, like both of these storylines are incredibly similar when you break them down. Oh yeah. Same, like, same they, beats. Same just beats. Exactly. Opposite, opposite endings. And we were talking about these different characters. We're talking about the, the optimism in, in Cindy and the, the content in Ryan Gosling's character is the big thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, these are just two different types of survival tactics, essentially, in our society. And, and like you said, when you were talking about like our generation growing up in the nineties and the uh, early aughts, being told we could do everything, mm. and you know, eventually you kind of come to the sad realization that that's not the truth. It's and not the truth. There are two ways you cope with that: you cope by striving to be more, like Cindy, or you just accept it and make the best of it, like Ryan Gosling's character, and. It's hard to do either. It's hard to do either. It kind of sucks doing both. Mm -hmm. And if you find someone who has that same mentality as you, you can be incredibly happy. But if you can't get on that same page, even if you were on the same page long ago, like it's going to suck. And it's going to get to this point where you just have to, again, do what's best for survival. And yeah. that is like what the core of this film is for me is this idea of these are two people making a really tough decision to do what's best for them moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, we don't even get the confirmation that they're getting divorced. I mean, we see him walking away and everything like that, but did their conversation in the, in the kitchen change anything? I, I, we don't know, but you were talking about the ending of the third man, that scene This ending is very similar to the ending of the third man. Go back to your mother, go back to your mother, go back. And she goes running back to the mom and we just see the them in the foreground. And we see Ryan Gosling walking down, which by the way, the song that plays throughout almost this entire movie is foreground by Grizzly bear. Um, Interestingly enough, but before we end, I just, I just got to bring up the, you always heard the one you love scene because 
again, going going back to this, there there was a there used to be a mythology to movies, right? Like that I just don't feel like we have anymore. I like I didn't really like Nomadland, but I don't know anything about the making of Nomadland. Yeah. I don't know what Chloe Zhao put into that movie. I don't know what her heart and soul was. And I feel that way with like a lot of movies that come out nowadays. Mank came out. That's what happened. Like it came out and it was a movie and it was on Netflix. And I don't know what Fincher and Oldman and all of them did for this. Like, I don't know what mm-hmm. they put into it. I don't know what their heart and soul was. But with this movie, with Blue Valentine, Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams in this scene had both had separate conversations with Derek C. Anne France about, do you have any special talents? And they both told him, you know, obviously he had been walking around with you. He's like, yeah, I can play the ukulele. I can play a song, whatever. And, and she had said the, the president's thing. And then she also said that she could tap dance or what, like she used to take tap dancing. So they didn't know that about each other. So Derek Cian France says to them both, Hey, when you get in front of this door, perform your talents, but you know, in, in the scene. And so that's why Gosling literally says to her, do you have any special talents? And she starts rattling off the presidents and whatever. And she starts dancing while she does it because Cianne France had said to perform your talent. So she thought she was supposed to do both. So when that happens, Gosling says, oh, okay, this is all one shot, by the way, people. Like, yeah. it's crazy. And it was the first take because after that, it doesn't work. He says to her, okay, why don't you so – can, you can you can you dance? Yeah, I can tap dance. Okay, dance to the song, but I have to, to sing. I have to be goofy. And he starts playing the song. And when Michelle Williamson says to him, hey, you're actually kind of good. That is an absolutely authentic reaction from Michelle Williams, who had no idea that Ryan Gosling could play the ukulele or sing. That's the type of stuff I'm talking about. There is such a care that was put into this movie by these three people. And I'm not saying that that care doesn't exist anymore. But I just feel like as we get into these streaming wars and things like that, we're not getting the mythology behind these movies. Yeah. What went into these movies? What makes them personal to the person who made them? And I'm not talking about, oh, um, uh, and this is not a knock on her because the movie is actually very good, but Ava DuVernay with, um, with Selma. Well, I wanted to make a movie about Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, but tell me more about mm-hmm. you and why you wanted to make it the way you made it. Like I think about Spike Lee with Black Klansman. He gets into why he wanted to make Black Klansman and like why it was important to him and why he wanted to stylize it almost where his protagonist was kind of a sarcastic ass the entire time, you know, and and that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. We can have these huge, profound movies, but if it's being made by somebody who's just a studio person and, and you know, oh, well, we're going to put this person in there just because. What, why is this movie important to them? And why should I spend my money to go sit down and watch it? I know why I should go sit down and watch a Spike Lee movie. I know why I should sit down and watch a, a Denny blah, 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 movie. I, that Villeneuve. I know I just have to butcher it now. Um, but I know why I should sit down and watch these movies. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't know, like, and I liked Mank. I don't know why I should give a crap that David Fincher made that movie. 
like I understand Joseph Mankiewicz and all that and was his son wrote it and you know Ben Mankiewicz or something had something to do with it whatever it was but why do I why is David Fincher doing that movie when it used to be like I'm gonna go make Zodiac and this is what I'm gonna put into it like here's my behind the scenes yeah I just feel like as we get into the streaming it's how fast can we push this out and how quickly can we forget that it exists so that you care about our next movie that's just not good for film. And that's not going to create the legendary status of these movies. I, I, a movie that was on my list, that was an indie movie that came out a couple of years ago, was Waves. Mm-hmm. And I always say that that is one of the most underrated movies ever because when that came out, it didn't nail it right away for A24 at the box office, so it was gone. Mm-hmm. But when Trey Edward Schultz made that movie, what was the importance of that movie to him? I know there was so much and I wish I knew more about it, but because it was gone already, it was gone. And we don't focus as much on the promotion anymore because superhero movies are going to sell themselves. And if a Netflix movie doesn't get as many clicks, it doesn't matter. And it's going to get the clicks anyway, because people are going to open up their Netflix and see a new movie. That's your advertising. That's your promotion. I just like, when I say they don't make them like they used to, I just want to know the passion that is behind it. That's what I want to know. And with Blue Valentine, there is such a passion to this movie. This movie was not made for money. This movie was not made for fame. This movie was not made for Oscars. This movie was made because these people who were involved with this movie wanted to make a great movie that was a that was something that people could relate to. And I I haven't felt that in a while. I mean, I love The Father. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. The Father is one of the best movies ever. But I still don't even know. Did Florian Zeller have something like that going on? We don't know because Florian Zeller is not a big enough name right now. So we don't focus on Florian Zeller. And that was an indie movie that wasn't a Netflix or an Amazon movie. So we throw it to the wayside. It's just, it's sad how that's all going. And that's my, that's my soapbox for the day. You know, I just have to get that out because I just wish I would have the same feeling in 2022, 2023, watching a movie as I do when I sit down and watch Blue Valentine. And I just haven't had it. I used to have it all the time, and that's why my top 100 is loaded with depressing freaking movies. It's okay. We got to watch more depressing movies in the future. We do. We do. And it's going to be a little bit, guys. Uh, I think we had said in two weeks we're going to be coming back. Uh, the week of Thanksgiving we'll be coming back. <laughs> Billy Zane, the famous Billy Zane, says Blue Valentine is my favorite rom-com. Yes, very. Um But we'll be back in two weeks, and we're going to be talking about a ghost story from 2017 and Lawrence of Arabia from 1962. So don't worry. A ghost story will make you feel super small and unimportant and all that fun stuff, and we'll hit you right in the depression feels just like Blue Valentine did. That's a movie, John, that, again, the making of adds to the appeal of that movie because what they did, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, and what's the director's name again? David Lowry. Yeah, Lowry. What they did is just is just brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant. I can't wait to talk about that. And and maybe it's a yeah. rule of threes. Maybe we just need we just need like the Richard Linklater. Three people, yeah. yeah, Ethan Hawke. We just need the rule of threes. But I can't wait to talk about that one in Lawrence of Arabia. Obviously, um, four hour epic. That's you know, can't wait. John, you've seen Lawrence of Arabia or no? No. 
Okay. So anyway, it's four hours long. It's four it hours long. It is, but you sat down and watched Satin Tango, which is eight hours long. So I don't want to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I'm um, intending to watch it again soon too. So I, nice. I shouldn't really be talking. You should do a double feature of that and Lawrence of Arabia and of just course. not see the world for a day. But yeah. anyway, it's depressing because it's daylight savings and it's dark already and I'm miserable. So I'm going to go. But thank you all for listening. Um, become patrons, patreon.com backslash survivor specialist. If you want to talk movies, we have the Discord where you can talk movies and all that fun stuff. John jumps in there all the time trying to start conversations, but clearly none of you are in there because everybody just ignores it. So become patron, patreon.com backslash survivor specialist. John, don't stop fighting. Don't stop going. It's going to work one day. I know. And uh, we'll see you all in about two weeks when we talk about a ghost story and Lawrence of Arabia.